Well, I want to invite you to turn to uh, Hebrews again in the third chapter, and I'll be reading verses 12 through 14. Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, then we'll zero in especially on the 14th verse, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And let us pray. Father, again, we thankful for the privilege we have to come into your presence and thank you that we have a hearing because of the intercessory work of your son. We thank you we have a great and glorious high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. And so these moments I, I would pray especially for the help and of your Holy Spirit to convey your holy word, your living, pure, holy word in a way that is honoring to thee and in a way that is truly good to the, the souls of each one that you have been pleased to bring here this morning. I thank you that you are a sovereign God, an all-wise God, an all-knowing God, and would pray that you would just cause your precious word to go forth and be glorified. May it minister to all of our hearts and, and strengthen our, our love for thee and our delight in thee and our, our resolve to be followers of your pure and precious and holy Son. So we commit this time to thee. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been looking at this particular uh, section of Holy Scripture, uh, beginning in verse uh, 7 through 19, uh, the, the title of which, or a theme of which, is the peril of unbelief. Uh, it constitutes the, the second of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And we see uh, further that this uh, section commences with a very sober or serious warning. Uh, verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And that is followed by a, a verse that tells us how we are to respond to that kind of a warning, verse 13, namely to encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the way to respond to the reality of that warning is to encourage one another day after day. And um, it's very important that when we think of the Christian life, we don't think in terms of a lone ranger mentality, but the importance that we have of uh, needing one another, the very nature of the church as the body of Christ um, with its interdependence shows how much um, mutual ministry is needed among us. Uh, and that's to, um, there are, are forces, there are always forces that are orchestrated to um, undermine our faith and undermine our trust in the person of Christ and belief in God. And these forces are, are aided by the allurements of the world and the vulnerability of our own hearts. So we, we need to encourage one another in our, our commitment to the faith and our commitment to the person of Christ. We need to encourage one another while it is called today. We need to admonish and exhort one another so that no one is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I suppose um, that one may question whether or not we are really equipped to do that. One might say, I, I want to know that I have some level of success in encouraging a brother or sister in Christ 
Well, I think verse 14 is very helpful in emphasizing our relationship with the person of Christ. And it helps us to see that we can have success in ministering to one another. We can be helpful in encouraging one another. And there are two reasons here, I believe, why we can do so, why we can hearten each other and encourage one another in our earthly pilgrimage. And the first one has to do with the nature of our relationship to Christ as it relates to our union with him. We can be an encouragement to one another because of the nature of our, of our relationship with Christ, and especially as it relates to union with him. The, the structure of verse 14, you might have noticed this, is very much like the structure of verse 6. They're, they're both conditional verses. Verse 14 says, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And verse 6 that Christ was faithful to a son as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and, and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So being a part of God's household, indicate we indicate it is a very glorious thing. It's the house over which Christ is the head. It's a marvelous reality. In 1 Timothy 3.15, it's equated with the church of the living God. But our text emphasizes being partakers of Christ. It's another conditional verse, but it emphasizes being partakers of Christ, which connotes a, a deeper, more um, enriching kind of a bond, I think, with the person of Christ. It's a glorious description that is true of all Christians, partakers of Christ. And this description, for we have become partakers of Christ, brings out at least three features of our relationship under this first heading. It brings out three features of our relationship with the person of Christ. Number one, the language indicates that it was initiated by God himself, or being a partaker of Christ was initiated by God himself. I'm thinking of the words we have become, or as the Puritan Thomas, uh, excuse me, John Owen put it, we have been made, we have, we, we have become something that we were not before. We have become something that we were not before God decided to act upon our soul. There was a time when we were not partakers of Christ. Um, as the Bible says in Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the way it was with all of us at one point in time. We were separate from Christ. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We're not partakers of the person of Christ. Um, and the language is highly suggestive of God doing something at a particular point in time to make us partakers of Christ. Um, in 1 Peter 1, 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God, at a specific point or an instance in time, caused us to be born again. We became something that we were not before, a partaker of the person of Christ. Secondly, we see this is a, a work of a work of God which he sustains or maintains, if you prefer. Um, the verb have become here is in the, the perfect tense. And in a, a book written by Ernest DeWitt Burton, the well-known syntax of the moods and tenses in the New Testament Greek, he says, with respect to the perfect tense, the reference or the tense is thus double. It implies a past action and affirms an existing result. Past action and existing result. The, the verb filled in Acts 5.28 is in the perfect tense. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon 
upon us. You fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and it's having an ongoing influence. The term poured out in Romans 5, 5 is in the perfect tense. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love of God was poured out in your hearts, and we're still experiencing that reality. So it indicates that, that God has acted. We were made partakers of Christ, and, and we still share in that. He is still acting. He is still sustaining that relationship. It's much like the import of a verse you probably have memorized, Philippians 1.6. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or the ESV will bring it to completion. God will finish the job that he started at the time of regeneration, at the time that we were born again. He'll finish that work. Thirdly, the work he begins and sustains here, it's referred to as becoming a partaker of Christ. That's a particular work at hand. Um, terms that, that brings out sharing or participating, it's characterized as uh, having, giving, or receiving a share of something. Um, most fundamentally, it has reference to, I believe, partaking of the nature, the divine nature of the person of Christ. It's the, the converse of what we read in verse 14 of chapter 2. Uh, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is the person of Christ, he himself also likewise partook of the same, that is human nature, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So the, the Lord himself partook of human nature so that he could be the, the mediator for us and stand in our stead. Contrary to that, we became partakers of the divine nature by virtue of his work in us. We become partakers of the divine nature. Second uh, Peter 1, 4, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. John Owen wrote, He himself, referring to Christ, in like manner took part of the same, that is human nature. He was partaker of us, partook of us. How? By taking flesh and blood, that is entire human nature, so express to be his own as he expressed it. How then are we partakers of him, partakers of Christ? It is by our having an interest in his nature, by the communication of his spirit, as he had in ours by the assumption of our flesh. It is then our union with Christ that is intended, whereby we are made members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, Ephesians 5.30. He asked the question again, what is it to be partakers of Christ? The answer, he and we are made one. He the head, we the body, co-heirs and incorporated with him. We are one body with him as he speaks of his flesh and bones. More succinctly, um, B.F. Westcott in his work wrote, we have been united with him, and so we have been made now to partake in the fullness of his life. It's analogous to the little phrase that you read over and over again in the writings of the Apostle Paul, in Christ, uh, which has reference to our union with him. It's almost a way of referring to what it means to be a Christian. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 3, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Or in Romans 16, 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. So it's almost a way of referring to what it means to be a Christian. And it also, the phrase in Christ, which is analogous to becoming a partaker of Christ, it helps us to understand the profound transformation that occurs when we are saved. Because 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a 
new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. If one is in union with Christ, he or she um, is a divine creation. It's something that God has done. And you might have heard this in a, in a testimony. Somebody refers to a verse like this, and they, they say, when, when I was saved, everything changed. I mean, I took a walk outside, and it's like the birds were different, the sky was different, the trees were different, the plants were different. There, there was a sense of liveliness that was not there before. There's a new creation in Christ. It draws our attention also, the phrase in Christ, to the common life that we all share in Christ. In Romans 12, 5, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And these words from Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 kind of elaborate on the significance of this phrase in Christ or the concept of union with Christ, which I think our text is speaking of. Uh, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. O'Brien commented on these verses, Christ is not only the goal of the body's growth, as the head who rules over the body, he's the ultimate source for its growth, excuse me, of its growth. For he supplies all that is necessary for its well-being, including its unity, nourishment, and progress. Now, number four, being a partaker of Christ means not only union with him, but a, but a sharer of his benefits by means of the mediatorial work of uh, his mediatorial work in our behalf. As Owen put it, our participation of the benefits of the mediation of Christ is included. For example, in chapter 3 and verse 1, it speaks of being partakers of a heavenly calling. In chapter 12 and verse 28, of receiving a kingdom. So being in union with Christ means that we are beneficiaries of, of these particular gifts that come with knowing him. So we're in a position to encourage one another because of the dynamics that are inherent in the nature of our relationship with the person of Christ. It's not stoic, it's not lifeless, it's not insensible, but rather it is active. It's constantly animated and empowered by the life of Christ in, in, in the soul, indicated by the, or excuse me, mediated by the Holy Spirit. We've become partakers with Christ. So we have the resources to encourage one another and minister to one another. Now, a second reason we can encourage one another is because of the um, longevity which characterizes our Christian life or the continuity that characterizes our Christian life. And this isn't in our text, but in John chapter 8 and verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. So, so John 8 is a text about continuing in the faith. A true disciple continues to abide in the word. Um, and what I want to bring out here is it's really twofold. Um, we have to persevere in the faith to encourage one another. That's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? We have to continue in the faith, persevere in the faith to be able to encourage one another. And, and also, that persevering in the faith in and of itself, that is an encouragement to one another. We have to persevere in the faith to encourage one another. But when we do continue to believe in Christ and are committed to him, I'm arguing also that in and of itself is an encouragement to other believers. Now, the text itself, itself says, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If we hold fast 
the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. This, this conditional statement can be thought of as, as having three different qualities. Um, and it bears, uh, it, it bears vitally on this idea of perseverance. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Three different qualities. Number one, it involves tenacity or determination. I'm thinking of if we hold fast. The idea there is to retain faithfully, uh, to stick firmly, either in a physical or an abstract sense. That's found in 1 Corinthians 11.2. Now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good. Luke 8.15 where it speaks of the seed and the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. And then in Hebrews, in chapter 10, and verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I think it might enhance our understanding of the import of the term just a bit if we consider some of the uses of this term in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, referred to as the Septuagint. Sometimes it's translated to possess or take possession. In Joshua 1.11, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, prepare provisions for yourself. For within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go and possess the land. In Daniel 7.18, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. And then on more than one occasion, it refers to taking hold of the horns of the altar. In 1 Kings 1.51, now I was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For behold, he's taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Um, and then it's translated seize, S-E-I-Z-E, on occasion. 2 Samuel 1.9, then he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me or gripped me because my life still lingers in me. So it has this idea of tenacity or determination. Secondly, it's, um, it's a statement dealing with reality. It's an informed tenacity or an informed determination. They're not to hold fast to nothing, but rather to hold our assurance Firm until the end. At the beginning here, hold fast our assurance, has reference to uh, the beginning of the Christian life. And the term assurance reveals how they or how anyone begins the Christian life. It's a term that emphasizes confidence or conviction or steadfastness. A conversion in the New Testament, it's never presented as um, tentative or cautious or a bit unsure, that there's always a full, complete, soul-deep persuasion of the truth of the power of the gospel. That's the assurance. It's, that's what is held fast to. Um, you remember when Zacchaeus was converted, and we read in the gospel of, the, of Luke about him, and um, says salvation that came to his house, and you remember his approach was not, well, I'll try this for a while and see how it works. I'll, I'll believe on Jesus, and let's try this for six months and see, and see how it works. Rather, he hurries down from the tree. He receives him gladly. The connotation is wholeheartedly. He offers to give half of his possessions, and I, the sense is he would have given it all away. In 2 Thessalonians 2.10, speaks of those who are not saved. And why are they not saved? They did not receive a love of the truth so as to be saved, clearly implying that to be converted, there's a full persuasion of the truth. There's a love of the truth. There's an embracing of the truth at a very deep level, full assurance of truth of the gospel, full belief in the truth of the gospels. Um, it's like the mindset that is enjoined in, in Proverbs 23, 23. It says, buy truth and don't sell it. There's lots of things that we buy and we sell. 
Uh, your car, you might want to sell it right now. You bought it at one point in time, and now you're ready to sell it. The house that you live in, you liked it at one point in time, now you might be ready to sell it. But Psalm 23, Proverbs 23, 23 says, buy truth and you don't sell it. Charles Bridges wrote, having thus made the purchase, shall we part with it? Should we not find it all expected? Or should we, after all, discover that we did not want it? We should be glad to be rid of it. Many an estate has been bought and sold again from disappointed expectations. But though usually what we have bought, we are at liberty to sell. Here's a command to buy, but a prohibition to sell. And a merciful prohibition it is. For those who sell the truth, sell their own souls with it. And what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Can we look at Esau, Judas, Demas? selling their treasure for a thing of naught without sorrowful trembling, yet their apostasy clearly proved they, that they had never received the truth in the love of it. It was some shining shadow, mere notional and speculative, never engrafted in their hearts, having never felt the power or known its price, they could sell it for this world's pleasure and for the more flattering delusions of their own heart. They, they'd never felt the power of the gospel in their soul, so relinquishing it was really no big thing. They'd never really contemplated the, the glory of the price to secure the salvation of sinners, which was the death of Christ, the blood of Christ on the cross. But the injunction, it's to hold fast the assurance, the full persuasion of the truth of the gospel when it was first embraced. And the same term is used in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and it helps, it helps us to understand the nature of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, settled conviction of heart, that everything God said is true, it's trustworthy. And Hebrews 11, as you're aware, gives one illustration after another um, of those who, they were not wavering, they're not equivocating, that there's a full assurance of truth of everything that God says. Just one example, in verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking for the reward. That's, that's faith. That's full assurance. He was looking for the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured a seeing him who is unseen. That's full assurance, seeing him who is unseen seen. A third quality of this conditional statement is longevity, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Um, a firm here is the idea of secure or durable, established, until the end means until you depart and be with Christ or until Christ returns and we are with him. This is a clearly a statement about perseverance. And as I indicated, perseverance in the faith it is necessary to encourage one another. We have to continue in the faith. And perseverance in the faith in and of itself, it's an encouragement to other believers. And, and what I mean by that is just to, to witness another brother and sister in Christ who over time, and they still believe the gospel, and they still believe in the truth, and they still pursue holiness, and they still pray, and they still read their Bible, and they still come to church. That, that's an encouragement to our souls, just the example of somebody who is persevering in the, in the faith. So in light of that, let me just offer a, a couple of thoughts by way of... Uh, Conclusion, um, maybe, but uh, number one, uh, someone might say, in, in light of this discussion, I do not have a 
particular time in the past where I remember being saved in this fashion of a full assurance. It wasn't, my conversion was not like Paul on the road to Damascus where I, I just felt the truth of the gospel pour over my soul like the Niagara Falls. So when I, when I look back, there wasn't that profound initial full assurance. How, how do I respond to that? My response would be something like this. The question is, do you love Christ now? Is he the chief object of your affections now? Um, is for you to live to, to live Christ and die gain? Is that true of you now? Um, do you glory in the cross now? Are you completely relying on the righteousness of Christ now? Do you love Christ supremely now? That's the issue. That's evidence of full assurance. Uh, secondly, I believe a pattern of persevering in the faith is a legitimate ground for one's assurance of salvation. The last thing I want to do is ever give anybody false assurance of salvation or contribute to that. But I am persuaded a pattern of persevering in the faith is a, is a justifiable ground for assurance of salvation. I say that for two reasons. Number one, it indicates that God himself has done something real in your soul. If you have remained true to Christ year after year after year after year, that would indicate you didn't do that. God did something in your soul. And to re-quote re Philippians 1, 6, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work and you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. If God begins the work, he will finish it. And, and prolonged progress in the faith is evidence that God began a work in the soul. And God continues to sustain. And secondly, if you have been saved very long, uh, at any length of time, you have worked through many trials and tribulations. I know that because the Bible says he who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And sometimes when we think of persecution, we're thinking in jail and being tortured. But I, I would argue that no matter where you're living the Christian life, there is always opposition. And if you have been in Christ for a period of time, you have persevered and you've overcome obstacles. It could be um, just being alienated by a friend or uh, the object of ridicule or maybe loss of friends or being passed over for a promotion. Um, but there are many disappointments just in being a follower of Christ. So if you have persevered in the faith, that is a, a, a good, legitimate ground for the assurance of salvation. Well, I've got 10 minutes to go and my notes are over. <laughs> so that means it's time to pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us, and we thank you for the glory of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and I pray you take what we have considered and apply it to our hearts. I thank you that uh, you who began a good work will complete it unto the glorious return of your pure and precious and holy Son. I thank you for the power and the glory of the gospel, and I pray that you would make the appropriate application to each one of our hearts this morning for your honor and for your glory and for our good. We thank you for uh, this um, revelation, this deposit of truth, and I pray that it would be for your glory and your honor and for our own progress in the faith. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.